1: Hello and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Rachel Sylvester. And I'm Alice Thompson. Our guest today is a former politician who's
2: become a star of light entertainment.
1: Ed Balls was Chief Economic Advisor to Gordon Brown at the Treasury, then became an MP and served as Children's Secretary and Shadow Chancellor.
2: Since losing his seat at the 2015 election, he's competed in Strictly Come Dancing and recently
1: won the BBC's Celebrity Best Home Cook. He's also been appointed Professor of Political Economy at King's College London, co-chairman of the Holocaust Memorial Foundation and published a report on Global Britain.
2: He still has links to Westminster through his wife, the Labour politician, Yvette Cooper. But he has forged a new identity and seems to have thrived since leaving politics. He says, for the first time, I'm free to be myself.
1: Bulls, thanks very much for joining us. Um, We first met you 20 years ago, more than 20 years ago actually, and you were a rather intimidating advisor to Gordon Brown going on about neo-endogenous growth theory and swagging around with a slightly macho gang from the Treasury. And now you're its national treasure with your Gangnam Star routine and homemade lasagna. Do you feel liberated?
3: Well, it certainly feels a long time ago, that pre-1997 period when um, I was under 30 and looking back it probably was quite kind of macho and testosterone and that was i guess how it was back then it feels it feels kind of very different i'm not sure if liberated i don't feel a different person to 10 15 years ago but i probably do feel a different person to the me in my in my 20s i'm probably more mellow
2: and how does winning a cookery show compare to winning an election
3: Winning a cookery show is kind of hilarious. I mean, I, I really enjoyed it. And it was such a lovely show to do. It was so nice to um, to be able to go out. And um, we had like a month of filming and um, we really enjoyed it. It was a very warm experience, best home cook. A bit stressful, but, uh, but I really enjoyed it. But I think probably being elected and being a cabinet minister, that was harder. It was more exposed. It felt... Um, it was more difficult. But uh, that was then and this is now. And um, from my point of view, it was really nice to win something again.
1: <laughs> and who's more terrifying, Gordon Brown or Mary Berry?
3: Well, definitely Mary Berry. She's much more terrifying. Partly, <laughs> I think, structurally, that uh, if you are a top politician, as Tony Blair and Gordon Brown were, they were both prime ministers, you surround yourself with people who, who challenge you and, and say no and disagree. Whereas Mary is the doyen of cooking. She is a judge. And uh, if I was to sort of disagree with, with Mary Berry, I think that would be unacceptable. I mean, I don't think people say, Mary, you're wrong. So um, she was much more fierce and intimidating than Gordon and Tony ever were. Half the country thought Tony Blair or Gordon Brown were good. Half thought they were bad. Everybody loves Mary Berry. It turned out to be, in a way, more destabilising than I, than I realised because when I went on Strictly, i didn't really mind what people thought i mean i I was i was slightly worried about it obviously but if the judges said that was a bad jive it wasn't really going to make a huge difference to my life i mean of course it was a bad jive you know what do you expect craig (laughs) um but with mary berry i suddenly realized when she was going to criticize you know my cooking my mum's lasagna my gravy i found i really i really cared
2: and do you Westminster at all or do you feel guilty that you're not there during a time of national crisis or you know when we're trying to battle against the coronavirus?
3: I don't fully escape from Westminster because as you said in the introduction I I live with it and I can be on the floor down here chatting away to you or doing an interview on good morning about cooking and on the floor above Yvette can be chairing the Home Affairs Select Committee grilling Preeti Patel the Home Secretary so uh, I never fully escape I don't miss being being in Parliament very much. I miss the friendship and the camaraderie, but not the sort of the chamber. I definitely don't miss opposition. I miss being in government. I mean, we were in government for 13 years. Being in government is such an honour and a privilege, and it's so difficult. And in the last year, more than ever, I think government has been so important and such a kind of central part of all of our lives. More people have been watching government press conferences, because we need to find out what we are allowed to do and what's going to happen. And whether you're the Chancellor or the Health Secretary, the Prime Minister, you're making massive decisions on the basis of little information, where you're trying to predict the future. It's so hard. But I decided that wasn't what I was going to do. I didn't want to be part of the commentary on the government. I wanted to do, to do, to do different things. And that's what I've tried to do.
1: Do you now enjoy being a political spouse? Do you have to go around to events with Yvette and do you have to sort of play the sidekick, if you like?
3: Well, no, I had I had lots of training in that, of course, because Yvette was elected in 1997 and I wasn't elected for another eight years. So I've been to loads of events back in the late 90s where Yvette um, would go off around um, an event or a club or whatever with the mayor and I would sit with them the spouse there was a float for us behind the bar and um, <laughs> we'd compare diaries and talk about how hard it was juggling so i you know i i had a kind of quite a long spouse uh training so i'm sort of back into that again and um you know i try and we, we obviously talk about things and um a lot and i try and be supportive um but i don't try and do politics vicariously through vet. I mean, I'm out.
2: Do you feel sorry for Boris Johnson's fiancée, Carrie Simmons, in some ways, because she's always being accused of being Lady Macbeth?
3: Well, I mean, there is a deep and continuing sexism in politics. I mean, I was never, ever called Mrs Cooper by television interviewers. vet was called Mrs Balls, the wife of Ed Balls, when she was a cabinet minister live on the BBC. We found that when we showed people these two cabinet ministers who were kind of both in the cabinet together, people were more critical of Avette than than me. Part of the reason why it was good that I came of politics in 2015 was that vet was at the time um, going to run for the leader. And if I'd still been in politics, or you know, when I was asked I said no to the House of Lords, the last thing I wanted to do was be down the corridor, sort of looking like I was lurking, a figure in the in the shadows. And this idea that Carrie is the power behind the throne. Those things were never said about Dennis Thatcher. He was always sort of allowed to be a figure of kind of separateness, fun, you know, gin and tonics and golf. But whereas if you think of um, Cherie Blair, she was absolutely seen in the same way as Carrie. I do, I do think that, the, that Carrie Simons picks up a lot of that, um, that, that sexism, definitely.
1: And would you be as thrilled if Yvette became Prime Minister as if you had? Or do you still a bit of your regret not being leader yourself?
3: If Yvette became Prime Minister, I mean, I think I'd be I'd be pretty pretty horrified to be honest. I think she would as well. I mean, so of course I would be hugely pleased for Yvette, and I'd be very pleased for the for the nation, but it'd be part of me thinking, oh my God, are we about to be thrown right back into, into that kind of life again where every move and every step is sort of scrutinized and dissected and I mean we had some torrid torrid times ha- trying to handle the privacy of our kids over the years so um, but you know it's not happening at the moment because uh time is the the Labour Party so um, I- I've not got that to worry about I think being the leader or the Prime Minister is just like materially different to any other job as well in terms of the the scale of the um, the exposure and the expectation and the pressure
1: this- fascinates me about you is you're always challenging yourself and pushing yourself and always wanting to do things I remember we went to interview you once after Labour had lost the election you'd just taken up the piano and there's always some new challenge why do you think that is
3: I think it's just an extended midlife crisis really <laughs> um I always liked having a go at stuff and when I was 15 I remember being summoned in to see the, the head of athletics at school and he said um He said, you can run, but you're not the fastest and you can jump, but you can't jump the longest. But um, we need somebody to do the pole vault. (laughs) And I said, seriously, he said, yeah, he said, because everybody else is better at something else. But we think you can kind of do all of these things. And so I I took out the pole vault and um, they, they trained me and I was 15. So it was a hard pole. It wasn't a bendy pole. If you didn't run fast enough down the runway, and get up to the vertical, you went backwards again. It was a bit of a nightmare. So I I turn up to the, um, the, the, the City Athletics Championships. There were only three of us who entered. Only two of us got over the qualifying height. And as a consequence, I was in the county team. So two weeks later, I represented Nottinghamshire against Leicestershire and Derbyshire. At the under 15 pole vault did you win well no I didn't win I think I came third but it didn't matter because I was a county pole vaulter yeah. and, why did uh, you, let me, stop? Can you can you it turned out the under 18s were getting over the high jump from a standing start they were getting over a higher height than we were managing with the pole at 15 <laughs> which probably tells you that we were fairly limited in our pole vaulting but it was you know I could never have represented the county at running or long jump or high jump I was a county pole vaulter and you know I did it. And then I, I think I pretty retired at that point, thinking that, you know, I could rest upon my laurels. But then 40 years later, when I went to um, speak to this enormous conference in Telford, when I was the secretary of state for children, schools and families, it was a conference of um, PE and athletics teachers. And there were 2000 people in this huge room. And I started off by um, telling them that I'd been an, anti- an under 15 county pole vaulter. And um, I think it won me huge respect until I admitted the truth um, about my, my limited pole vaulting. So as a consequence, I've always kind of thought always good to have a go at new things and, and have a challenge. And um, after we came out of government in 2010, because the truth is government is so consuming that 13 years, quite how we managed to have three kids and live in two places and keep our lives together. But in 2010, when I came out of government into opposition, there was more time. And I think it was, that was one of the toughest periods in terms of feeling kind of, you know, low. And so I thought, well, I should start doing new things. And that began a midlife crisis, which has been going now for 11 years. And, you know, I'm loving it. I'm just trying to keep it going.
2: We want to take you back to your childhood. You were born in Norwich and your father is a zoologist, Michael Balls. And football was a huge thing in your family. Can you remember the first match that you ever went to?
3: Definitely. Um, We were a Norfolk family. My mum and um, dad were both born in the centre of Norwich and both with big extended families. And although we moved to Nottingham for my dad's job when I was eight, he moved to Nottingham University. All the family were still back in Norwich. And so any wedding, christening, family gathering always involved um, the football. I mean, I've sat outside weddings in car parks, listening to commentaries so many different times and going to the football was a big, exciting thing for me in the 70s. First game was, Norwich knowledge were in Division Three, but we drew Leeds United in the FA Cup. And it was um, January 1972. I think it was 72, was it 73? It's either 72 or 73, I can't remember. I was five or six. And um, we drew 1-1, and I went to Carrow Road. The week before, um, we went to see... Uh, March Town versus Wisbeach Town with my uncle, um, which was this little local game. And they gave me a bag of pears, a bag of sweets, and a, um, a hat and a rattle. And I was being tested to see whether I could survive the 90 minutes of a football match. And actually, I didn't look at the comic. I didn't eat the pears. <laughs> I, didn't, um, I just did the rattle thing and watched the whole game. And so I passed the test and ended up going to um, the football. Um, I didn't know at the time, but it turned out that My grandfather, who I never met, he died when my dad was 10, um, worked for the the gas company in the centre of Norwich. And people worked on a Saturday morning and then would have fish and chips and then go to the football. And my grandfather used to walk down Gas Hill in Norwich and then he worked on the turnstiles at the football club. And so my um, dad and his brothers, when they were little, could jump over the turnstile if they went to their dad's turnstile and get into the ground for free. And so it turned out that there was this sort of link which goes way back in um, our family, which I didn't know till later. But it was um, it's been a very important thread to out not just my life, but I think my family's life. The football.
2: Mm. And then, when you were eight, you moved to Nottingham and you proudly wore your Norwich City kit in the show and tell at school. I'm rather impressed you had show and tell in those days, actually. What? Uh, or- Happened. I mean, were people absolutely horrified?
3: What was my mum doing? I mean, letting me do this. I mean, I actually, <laughs> I, I I went to school aged eight, like the first month of moving to a new school, where um, everybody thought we had a Cornish accent. It was actually a Northern <laughs> accent, but they thought we were from the West Country, who are cider drinkers. And I went wearing this full yellow and green kit and wore it for show and tell because I was so proud of where I came from and my football team and I was good at football. Of course, the other revelation happening at exactly the same time, because we came from Norfolk, where um, we were in a very small village school, and where there were three full pages of the phone book in Norwich with um, with our surname, Balls. There was actually another family, another Balls family, in the little village we lived in, to whom we were unrelated. And then we moved to Nottingham, and I suddenly discovered, around the same time as that assembly, that actually... Our surname was quite unusual. There were only two in the phone book in Norwich, and to most other people, quite funny. And this was this is a kind of quite a big shock to me. So my memory is this poor eight-year-old lad discovering that we had a funny surname, which everybody laughed at. And the chutzpah of that was to think, well, you know, chin it out, face it out. And so I would just stand there in my yellow and green football kit and show and tell and say, Norwich and proud of it.
1: And how badly were you bullied? Did you, was it mainly verbal or was it also physical?
3: I think it was verbal. Uh, I was always kind of, for my age, my mum would say heavy boned. <laughs> I was always quite chunky. So um, I definitely avoided older kids if I, if I could. And I avoided situations where I had to say what my, my name was. But no, it was more that people, people just kind of laughed. I mean, it's, it's one thing. You know, I was good at football, played for the county team but uh you know if you would go to football training and the coach would kind of tell you all to say your name uh, and i would say mine it didn't really i didn't mind if people my own age laughed when all the parents fell about laughing as well it was a bit of a bit of a shock so um you know i think it was actually when i think back on it it was quite a searing experience uh, in in that in that time and now my name is so much part of my identity i couldn't ever imagine changing it but when i was nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, you know, I would have changed it like a shot. And um, you know, we we had continual phone calls to the house where people would, you would answer the phone and then somebody would say, balls, ha ha, and laugh really loudly (laughs) and hang up. There was one time though in, it was the World Cup in, I'm trying to remember when, it was probably 1982. Um, so I would have been 15 and we had one of these, these calls, which happened, you know, once every couple of weeks, it wasn't like every day, but quite regularly. And I was also always answering the phone because I had a, um, a girlfriend and I, and my dad didn't really like us using the phone that much. So I would try and answer the phone surreptitiously. So I answer the phone and somebody kind of laughs and starts kind of saying balls and, It was a key moment in the World Cup semi-final where there'd just been a foul by the goalkeeper for a penalty. And I remember saying to this guy, do you realise it's the World Cup semi-final? There's just been a foul. And you're wasting my time and yours rigging me up to say that. Grow up, get over yourself, hang up and go watch the football. (laughs) Are you mad? Hung up and thought, yes. And I think actually it was, I remember it was such a turning point because I thought, you know, That's the way to deal with it. you just got to tell people, don't be ridiculous, come on. When I think of the, you know, how I was under pressure when I was in politics, clearly part of that sort of, you know, tough, hit me if you like, chin out, comes from those experiences when um, when I was young and how I learned to deal with it. And I I think I'm much more aware of that now than I was maybe 10, 15 years ago.
1: Do you think it made your stammer worse or did you just not consciously think about it in that way?
3: Well, I didn't know I had a stammer.
1: Mm.
3: I ran the debating society. I ran the politics society at school. When I went to college, I was elected the junior common room president. And so I spoke publicly all the time. So I don't think I ever let it get in the way. And I sort of, when I was 14, I didn't think I can't be a politician because I've got a stammer. I would have thought I can't be a politician because nobody could ever put my surname uh, you know, on an election post. That was much, much bigger deal in my mind, which feels now kind of naive and, um, and um, you know, a long time ago because I don't think my name has ever done me any harm in politics. But I think back then, there's no doubt my surname felt like a much, much bigger burden than this weird thing which sometimes meant I just couldn't get the words out.
2: In some ways, it is surprising that you decided to pursue this career that did involve so much public speaking, Do you think it was a deliberate way in some ways or subconsciously just of of trying to push yourself or was it just because you love politics so much?
3: Well, I think it was only once I was selected to be a candidate in 2004 that I became aware that this problem was kind of recurring and in quite a big way. And over the previous 20 years from being going to university age 18, rising up through the Financial Times, through the... um, the treasury my my speech had never held me back and i didn't need to do a lot of public speaking and to the extent i did i didn't get a lot of feedback do you know what i mean it's not as though i was um reading reviews of myself in the times or the guardian when i was a treasury official so even if i did speak publicly nobody would ever really notice so it was only after i'd already made the decision to go into politics that i suddenly realized i had this challenge but i didn't know what it was and um it, it all crystallised on a Saturday morning in September 2004. I'd been selected to be a Labour candidate after eight years at the Treasury. Um, I'd, I'd had a very difficult interview late at night on Newsnight on the day I was selected, where I'd had to stand in the dark in a car park for an hour and a half to go live at quarter to 11 at night. And I think I was kind of quite stumbling and hesitant in my speech but I didn't quite know that at the time and then I agreed to go on any questions and I went on any questions the Friday at the end of the Labour conference it was the day after Tony Blair had announced he was having a heart operation and was going to um, to to serve a full third term it was the moment where Gordon Brown landed in Washington to discover this because he hadn't been told by Tony Blair and one of his team said it's an African coup, which was then a big headline Mm. at the time, Blair's coup against Brown. And I had booked on any questions. The first answer is going to be about Brown and Blair. I'd really thought about what to say. And I think it was was fine. It was good. And then later on, we then had a conversation about the Iraq war, which I'd not really ever had to talk about publicly before because I wasn't involved in any of those discussions and I hadn't been an MP. And I had these, these moments where I just really blocked and couldn't get the words to come out. And it was quite awkward. But then you get in a car afterwards to go home. And this is a world before, before social media, no Twitter, uh, no nothing. So you just travel home thinking, I think that was OK, but I'm not quite sure how that went. Because that Iraq thing, it didn't, didn't quite work. And then the next morning, my dad rang me and said, I heard you on any questions. I don't know what it is. But you've got the same thing as me. And I think it may stop you ever getting on in politics. I think it may be a real problem. And I should have told you before. And I remember at the time thinking, that is enormously unhelpful, Dad. I mean, why tell me now? And he didn't even know what it was. And that was the beginning of um, what was then a long journey to, to discover and then to deal with this thing. But at the time, it was, it was a thing. I had no idea what it was.
2: What was the worst moment at the dispatch box? Because it's a very difficult environment there in the House of Commons. It's incredibly shouty and
3: tough. I had lots of bad moments uh, in that early period. <laughs> I think probably, though, the, the, the worst moment was um, when I got appointed to the Cabinet. And I was the Education Secretary, the first Children's Schools and Families Secretary. And I had to do our first education oral questions. And I had to do the first answer. And the way it works in all questions is that you you first give a very short, prepared answer, and then you then answer the question one off script. And my off script answers were always fine. But that first answer where I had to read precise words, I really couldn't get the words to come and was very halting. It made me look like I was nervous. I wasn't nervous at all, but the words wouldn't come out. And sitting behind me was Gwyneth Dunwoody, who was... Um, Doyen Labour backbencher she um, passed away the following year but she was there and she said really loudly and so the whole chamber heard he's supposed to be the secretary of state and he can't even get his words out and it was like so judgmental and chilling and terrible for me on my first day and um, and I went back feeling really down about this thing and i just didn't know what it was and but it was it got to the point where it become a real problem i think that was the lowest moment
1: you're listening to past imperfect with rachel sylvester alice thompson and our guest this week the former politician ed balls we'll be back after this to enjoy more incredible stories from
2: incredible people, why not get a digital subscription to The Times and The Sunday Times today with one month for free? Head online and search thetimes.co.uk forward slash
0: past Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way
2: Welcome back to Past Imperfect with Rachel Sylvester, Alice Thompson, and the former politician and Strictly star, Ed Balls.
1: How did you decide you needed some kind of treatment? How did somebody at Westminster say to you, look, this must be a a more more serious problem?
3: So I talked to um, Gordon Brown about it, although Gordon, on the one hand, organised the the breathing coach, but told me, um, you know, in a very Gordon-like way, tell no one, Ed, tell no one. <laughs> so um, so he 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 definitely didn't think that um, revealing anything was a a good idea uh, about it, was, was kind of worried that it needs to be kept under wraps.
1: Sign of weakness.
3: Yeah. And well, and I think that's that that is that's the um, it's probably still the culture today, but it was absolutely the cult- culture. Back then. So I go back into the department and say, This has now become such a problem. Mm. We've got to do something. What is this? And um, one of my new advisors, who's a brilliant expert in the children's world called Francine Bates, said, Leave this to me. And she went off and she made phone calls to people in the sort of children's world. And she came back three days later and said, uh, You have a stammer. And I said, No, I don't. She said, You definitely do. And then she got up the British Stammering Association website and she showed me the pages which were describing what's called an interiorized stammer. And it was just this incredible moment of revelation because they described what I was dealing with. Mm. It wasn't a stammer where you couldn't get your words out. It was what was called a block. The stammer happened on the inside and the way they described it was is like, it's like an iceberg and there's this tiny bit above the surface, which just comes above the, um, the waterline, which you might perceptibly be able to, to, to see, but underneath there's this huge, great block, this big iceberg, your internal fight and struggle to get the words out and to stay calm and to not reveal. And, Every now and then you can't do that, and you show that little glint of iceberg above the surface. But inside, there was this huge thing going on. And that is how it had been, particularly for me for the previous four years since I was selected. But that was how it had been back when I was a teenager as well. And I read this and thought, maybe that's it.
1: Hmm.
3: And then Francine then said, You're going to need a therapist. And I said, I can. I'm a therapist. I'm a cabinet minister. Cabinet ministers don't have therapists. And she said, "Well, I think we should just talk to somebody because I think that's the only thing that which will make a difference." And so, she made more phone calls and brought in a therapist called Jan Logan. And she said, um, "I do a course, um, a ten-week course on a Thursday evening, at City Lit. Do you want to come?" I said, "What with other people?" And she said, "Yeah." I said, "I can't do that. I can't. I can't, I can't turn up." As a cabinet minister to some course i said i have to be done just um just you and me and she agreed to do that that i would go and visit her at her home and i was really worried that anything that she's tried to do with me because she said to me it will probably get worse before it gets better if we try new techniques and i said i can't afford for it to get worse because I'm in the cabinet and I have to do speeches. I could do the Mar show in two weeks time. I'm doing Nick Robinson tomorrow night on the green. I can't, I can't be worse. He's got to get better. Mm. So it was very, I was quite resistant to even starting and worried that it might become public, worried that it would become worse. And then when I went to see her for the first time and we started doing some videos and then she said to me at the end, she said, I think with you, she said, this is all going to be about NLP. It's going to be about neurolinguistic linguistic programming. It's about getting your head to feel right about how you speak so that you know when it goes wrong and you can manage it. She said, but I, in my experience, there's no possibility of this improving until you go public and speak about it. And I just thought this was completely crackers. I said, I cannot possibly go and talk publicly about a stammer. I'm not even sure it is a stammer. I said, but even if it is, I can't tell anybody.
1: Why could, said, could you not?
3: because i think look i was um i was this kind of young labor mp i'd been appointed to the cabinet quickly the toys were gunning for me this this whole kind of attack on me going on you know obviously anytime you've risen a bit quick you know, there's, there's lots of people out there who are looking for you to fall and i think at the time i thought that to reveal that kind of vulnerability would be a real kind of blow, it would be, it would make things much worse. You know, Gordon had said to me, tell nobody. My dad had said to me, you've got the same as me. I don't know what it is, but I think it will stop you ever getting on. And to be told, I had to kind of be open and public about this. At that time, I thought that was, you know, a step too far, a stress I couldn't deal with, that I would just be lambasted. And so I spent uh, two years in weekly therapy, resisting going public. And I spoke to four people, Um, to the speaker, John Burkow, um, to Nick Robinson, uh, to um, the education editor at the time, and also kind of bizarrely to Michael Palin, who um, I was at a green room with in ITV, and he has a long history in the stammering world. And I told them, it was such a huge moment for me to tell somebody, but I told them privately because if it went wrong one day, I just needed there to be somebody who I could ring and say, you know, could you tell them it's true? I think I worried people wouldn't believe me. And therefore I needed to have some some, some witnesses. And when I told these four people, it felt really good. It felt really good to tell somebody. It was such a weight off my mind.
2: And it sounds very like the king's speech in some way was when the king couldn't articulate his thoughts and the queen was incredibly worried about him. What did Yvette say? Because she must have known the whole way through and it must have been almost as agonising for her when she had listened.
3: Uh, it, it is very like the the king's speech in the in the sense that um, the king had a block. It wasn't an overt stammer. It was all about the, the environment in which he was um, he was doing things. A few years later, I have persuaded Colin Firth that he should become active in the stammering world, which he agreed to do. We've done lots of things together since. But I said to him, the best moment in the King's speech is at the end, when the King delivers actually a pretty fluent speech. He he doesn't do it in his suit. Once he's had the formal photos, he gets relaxed and he gets ready to deliver his speech, and he does it. And then he comes out, and the therapist says, Logue, says... That was really good. But you did stammer on the W in the third paragraph. And the king said to Logue, I had to throw one in. So they knew it was really me. Uh... And I said to Colin Firth, that is the most affirming moment for Eddie Stammerer because my huge problem for years was trying to deny and to conceal and to stop and prevent. And actually, it was the realisation that, It was just part of who I was. And that telling people this is what I am took away lots of pressure and lots of stress. It was so much easier. And that king moment, you know, I had to throw one in so they knew it was really me. Of course I stammer, it's fine. And Colin Firth told me that... um, the weekend before the final filming for the King's speech, they'd found Logue's diaries and Colin Firth had gone home and read them all and came in on the Monday and said to his director, I found the line from Logue's diary. The King says to him, I had to throw one in so they knew it was really me. So that went into the film because of Colin Firth's personal research. That's why he won the Oscar, because he had the insight to see that the liberation for the stammerer is the end of the avoidance and the denial and the, the the acceptance. And, you know, ever since then, ever since I went public, I stammer all the time. I stammer in speeches, I stammer in interviews, do it lots of times in this conversation with you. But I'm not trying to stop it or conceal it. I can ride it really well. I do it so well now that people don't notice. The only time I ever get annoyed is when anybody says he used to have a stammer. I have it all the time. <laughs> um... But I deal with it. and. It's just it's just part of me.
1: So, what are your coping strategies? Do you have ways of building up sentences or trying to make sure it doesn't happen?
3: Well, so coping strategies. I mean, the the, the truth is, there's there's lots. There's certain words. If I was reading a piece of text, there's certain words I can't start. A, I, I can't ever start a sentence with an H. Starting with having is a killer. So, I always have to write everything myself so that I know that my by, my consonants are right it means reading from the bible is quite challenging because rewriting the bible is about one of the few things you're not really <laughs> allowed to allowed to um to do i um for years i did all of my speeches as, as education secretary I did all of my speeches without a text so that i would just basically learn them and then do them off the cuff and it's so much more kind of fluent for me like that i much prefer live but i like doing things where there's the space to be able to speak and i don't ever try and worry about whether i'm speaking in kind of full sentences with subordinate clauses i've learned that most people in in the real world including most top presenters speak um their way uh when i do um tv i don't like to be to be scripted i like just to you know i know i know what i need to say and I'll discuss it with the director but then I'll say it in my way as comes naturally as fluently as but as colloquially as I, I I I can and then I know when I block and in the old days it would cause a panic and a crisis and that's what you would see in my face and now if I feel a block I just know that I'll just find a way to ride it and I'll come out the other side and I can do that now basically imperceptibly.
2: and um, How did you actually tell people in the end that you had a stammer? What was the moment when you went public?
3: Well, I, I uh, as part of my kind of complex task of um, not telling people, but having my kind of defences in place, uh, we'd commissioned a, a, a video from Action for Stamming Children, children with stammers telling teachers that uh, they had a stammer. It was called, Wait, Wait, I've Not Finished Yet. And Michael Palin and I were launching it when I was in the cabinet at a primary school with loads of children. The film was so moving. And also for me, very, very kind of close to the edge for me because it was so it was so acute. And I hadn't watched it in advance, which was very foolish of me. So I was quite emotional. Then afterwards, we did a little press huddle and one of the journalists said, you've got a stammer. Why won't you talk about it? And I said, well, actually, you know, it's not about me today. It's about the children and their bravery. And he said, my son's in that video. He has had the courage eight eight years old to talk about his stammer, to help other kids, and you won't talk about it. I think you're a coward. And I left that event thinking you know, I didn't know I was a coward. I thought I was not trying to put myself centre stage. I thought I was just trying to kind of you know, not expose something about myself. But actually, I'm a coward. And so I um, I went back. And I wrote a letter to every, that afternoon to every one of the children in the video telling them that I had a stammer too and how um, moved I was by, um, by what they'd done. And then um, I did an interview where I talked for the first time about my stammer publicly. And on that Saturday, my dad, in his 70s, rang me and said, um, I've just read your interview and I've had a stammer for 70 years and I never knew. And I had not spoken to him about it for the previous four years because it was too difficult and painful. But actually, from his point of view, me talking about it meant he suddenly discovered a truth about himself he hadn't known before. And it was, he's talked to me a lot about it since, but and to others since, but he 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 his concealment had lasted 30 years longer than mine. And then the next week I did an interview on. Breakfast TV with Michael Palin and a little lad who stammered talking about stammering, and and I was off. And um, what I've found since is that I need to talk about stammering about once every six months publicly. It tops me up. If I've not talked about it for a while, then I find that you know I'm more likely to stammer in an interview or uh, on in a performance. Whereas it just helps me. It helps me to kind of do a bit of public again because it just kind of gives me the the confidence that it's okay. I think Um, in some ways um, it
1: makes you a better politician if you can show vulnerability, that actually it helps you to connect with the voters.
3: Well, I think for me personally, it's it's definitely enabled me. I mean, if I hadn't had the stammer, there's no way I'd have done Strictly. (laughs) There's no way. Because I remember at the time standing with... um, live on BBC One, known there's 10 million people about to see me do a waltz in a suit with a 27-year-old Russian world professional champion, dance champion, as the announcer said, doing the waltz, Ed Balls, and his partner, Katya Jones, and having this out-of-body moment thinking, what am I doing? How did I end up here? I mean, I must be crazy. But at the same time, thinking, you know, can't be as bad as having a stammer in the House of Commons. And I managed to deal with that. So I can do this.
1: Did you worry that it was going to make you seem less serious or did you actually love or fake tan? Or in fact, are they very similar? Because they say politics is showbiz for ugly people. The fact
3: you ask me that question probably reveals why I had to think about it. You know I mean? Were you worried, Ed, that people would think you were a complete joke doing the jive or the mask um, <laughs> with a green face? So I, yeah, I did worry about that, actually, because, you know, I'd come out of politics and I wasn't sure that, that was the end and what was I going to do? And um, I had a, a fellowship at Harvard. And, um, and then when the call came through, I said to Yvette, um, they've asked me to do strictly, I'm going to say no. And she said, why would you say no? <laughs> why would you say no to the biggest television show in Britain? If you love to dance, it'll be really fun. And politics is so wild. Why wouldn't you go and do it? And I said, are you serious? And she said, honestly, I think you should think about it. And I then rang Jeremy Vine, um, the radio presenter, who had been on the previous autumn. And he said, it was the most life-affirming thing I have ever done in my life. I've never enjoyed anything more. He said, it doesn't stop me interviewing politicians on the Radio 2 programme now. I mean, he said, it may stop you becoming governor of the Bank of England. <laughs> to be honest, was not very likely anyway, to be honest. George Osborne and David Cameron weren't going to make me governor the Bank of England. So, uh, And I just thought, well, actually, maybe it'll just be really fun. But I was, I was quite nervous about it. To, and you could see in my first week the, the nerves, the bit of denial, a bit of concealment. I had said to them, you know, I don't really want to do Latin and um, I don't really want the sequins. And they set me up in this kind of quite austere suit for the first week. And then I just, I learned such a huge amount over those three months about myself, performance, politics about the public and um i learned that if i was feeling reticent and shy that would communicate and people would feel the same way whereas if i just let go and went for it people love it when you try and um even if it went wrong people still enjoyed it And I think they just enjoyed somebody who was not going to be pompous and stuck up and have a go.
1: Are you also incredibly competitive? So you want to go on Best Home Cook because you want to win? Or is it not like that?
3: Well, nobody thought I was going to win Strictly. I mean, I never was going to win Strictly. But the um, BBC rang and said, would you like to do Best Home Cook? And it it sounded so fun and warm. And the warmth amongst the contestants was, with all of us, was that we were also pleased to be there. And so much of what all of us did was about things we'd learned from our families and which we cooked for our families. I don't think any of us were worrying about who was going to, to win or not. I mean, as I know, you never want to go out in the first week. But other than that, um, just to be part of it and to enjoy it was much, much more important. And sometimes you could win these things and not not actually be the winner so um so however having said all of that if you ask my family they'd say of course he's competitive <laughs> of course of course I'm competitive
2: when you cried at the end it wasn't because you were so bad at making gravy why did the whole show mean so much to you
3: well it meant much more than I expected uh, when I agreed although our our teenage 20-something kids are very perceptive and I didn't realise this until much later. They, they were very tough with the vet. They said it was fine for him to do strictly, they said, because everybody knows he can't dance, but he can really cook and he really cares. And if he goes on this programme and the judges are critical of what he cooks, that would be quite difficult. And that was kind of what it was like. If Mary Berry had not liked my lasagna, I mean, that was my mum's lasagna she taught me in in the early 1980s you can't criticize my mum's lasagna so there was a sort of um, it was much more exposing um, in that way but the the emotion came from my mum has um, now very serious dementia I've not been able to see her since last March for a year Um, she's in a care home in Norwich and with all of the challenges which come with that and we've or as a family being very supportive of my dad, who's been able to visit sometimes. Um, but my mum taught me to cook. And there I was cooking some of her recipes and the judges were liking it. And I it really, and I thought to myself, the thing I know with my mum is she, she and her carers they sometimes watch um, things I did on strictly or my other TV shows on YouTube or whatever. And Although often she doesn't know it's me, sometimes she'll turn to the carers and say, "What's he doing now? What's he up to now?" <laughs> oh. And the thought that my mum might see this and know that she had taught me to cook and that I was carrying it on for our family, and that she might know it as me and be proud—that was that—that that was the thing in that moment which really kind of got to me.
1: Did they say to you that she'd watched
3: it? The nature of the 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 care home world meant that there was, lots of complications, but they are now watching. And so she's, I think halfway through, mm. um, but I don't know. She hasn't got to the final yet, but the, the, the great thing about dementia, I say that that's a ridiculous thing to say. The thing about dementia is that um, if she watches it and she doesn't know it's me, she can watch it again tomorrow and she'll enjoy it just as much. Cause she won't know she watched it yesterday. And so she, um, you know, it's it, it, during the lockdown, sometimes I get messages on Twitter or emails from people saying, I've been low today, but I watched Gangnam Style with you and Katya. And it really cheered me up. And that's a lovely thing to be able to do for people. And the same is true for my for mum. My we know that uh, there's certain things, certain songs, certain pictures, certain pieces of music, certain things that I've done on television, which we know will make her smile. And um, she won't do so every day. Um, but she will return to the same things day after day after day, and uh, I think she will um, see these programs lots and lots of times now. And sometimes she'll notice me, and that's I think enough.
2: And looking back to yourself at the age of eight, wearing that Norwich City kit into the show and tell, is there something you wish you'd said to yourself that you now know?
3: I definitely think that that in those in those years moving being an outsider with our surname i think um i think it definitely meant i had a a sort of an external um kind of defense mechanism a a desire to put out my chin and say you know knock me down if you can Um, and being forced because as a stammer as a cabinet minister and then losing my seat to um to be much more kind of just 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 open about me and who i am and what i'm good at and what's gone wrong and what i find hard has been so kind of liberating and so affirming actually and i wish i'd known that at a much much Earlier stage, I think, you know, I mean, who knows, because as you said at the beginning, um, in that run up to the 97 election, you know, we'd not been in government for 18 years. And there was a sort of, you know, there probably was a macho-ness, but maybe a little bit of sort of external brittleness. And I wished, I wished I'd known that taking that away would be would be okay.
1: Ed Balls, thank you very much for talking to us.
3: See you later. Bye.
1: been listening to past imperfect with rachel sylvester alice thompson and our guest this week the former politician and strictly star ed balls
2: this is a wireless studios production produced by ben mitchell
1: to make sure you never miss an episode you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and listen back on the times radio app we'll be back with another past imperfect next week until next time thanks for listening
3: If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in this episode or others in this series, please go to our podcast page or website where there are links to charities and organisations who are there to help.